It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We're coming to you from the sunny coastal town of Geelong. Uh, and Sri Lanka are playing the UAE at the moment. We're recording this during a match, so we're watching the game that we'll do a show about later. But this show is not that show. This show is a different show. Such is the can't-stop-and-won't-stop nature of this week. Yeah, thick and fast uh, is the theme of well, the order of the day, or order of the month, really, uh, now that I'm back with you. First time we've recorded a, a weekly show together since, I guess it would have been during the Commonwealth Games, possibly, something like that. And, of course, we were in Sri Lanka together immediately before that. But, yes, we've got lots to get through, as always, uh, ranging from the inane to the quite serious Mm. because a fair bit's happened since we last convened which would have been when you were still probably in Canada uh, and I was in London since then you've been to San Francisco where Mm -hmm. we recorded a story time edition or something like that and then you've been back to Melbourne now in Geelong and yeah I'm still pretty jet lagged three days later from my own journey and and Winnie likewise and in the meantime you've also done an interview with Shield Berry I have who's covered over 500 test matches uh, been all around the world done it for decades and has a new book and so there's a chat with him at the back of the show about cricket and and other things beyond yeah it's called Beyond the Boundaries Travels on England Cricket Tours it's out in paperback this week it was released last year around the Ashes which he didn't come to which was significant because he's been to every Ashes series in Australia for like 40 years but yeah he's now stopped touring and written a, a memoir that relates to being on the road with the England team but it's mm-hmm. about a lot more than that it's more his observations I suppose of, of being in countries all around the world since 1977 I think it was when he went to Pakistan so he'd never listened to a podcast before he came up to me <laughs> um, throughout the course of last summer saying in his uh, 
imitable fashion. Uh, Adam, no, I won't take him off, but he's a very easy man to take off, as you know, and uh, say, I, I, I wish to come on your podcast. I've never listened to one, but I, I, I gather it's worthwhile. <laughs> so, uh, yes, that's in, that was in the can last week, and uh, right. yes, uh, that'll be played out later in the ep. Well, there are lots and lots of other things that have been happening in cricket news and events, and rather than tell you what we're going to talk about, let's just start talking about them, <laughs> as we'll see what we can get through in the next half hour or so. A short and slightly incongruous one off the top, in the middle of a T20 World Cup, Australia has a new one-day international captain. They've appointed Pat Cummins, which seems like the continuity candidate, like the easy way to not have an awkward situation where Aaron Finch is captaining the T20 side, someone else is doing the one-day side and Cummins is doing the test side. Given there's a 50-over World Cup next year, my read on it is Cummins would do it up to that point and then maybe give it away after that, but... He'll be playing most of the one-day internationals between now and that World Cup because they'll want him in there as a bowler. Therefore, he might as well captain it. Yeah, I like this. This was always my view that in a World Cup year, and we're in that already, even though there's a 20-over mm-hmm. World Cup going on at the moment, we're inside 12 months to when the 50-over World Cup starts in India. Go with someone who is definitely going to be in the team. Mm-hmm. Go with your best cricketer. Go with a guy who's already leading the test side. And someone who's mindful. I mean, he, he did a series of media interviews today around this, and He's mindful that he won't play every one day, and he acknowledged that Alex Carey is there, the man who presumably will be the vice captain ongoing, and that's fine as well. So it's, it's yep. quite a mature approach. They're not saying we're going to bowl Cummins into the ground in 50-over cricket at the expense of his test cricket. Indeed, when Cummins was asked about this oh, in the last two or three weeks, he kind of patted it away and said, mm. oh, I don't want to take anything away from my test leadership. So I suppose there's been something of a sensible negotiation where right. they're like, well, we need you for the tournament. So do it yeah. periodically between now and then, but you will be the figurehead. I like it. But also, I mean, how much one-day cricket can they realistically play between now and then? Because they've got a four-test tour of India, mm. February, March, and then they go off to England for the start of June. Uh, I mean, potentially play the World Test Championship final if they make it, and then five Ashes tests. Not a lot of time left to play 50-over cricket. There's a bit in there, though. Uh, word on the street is that they're going to play three one-dayers against India in India at sure. the same time that they're for the Border Gavaska. They'll play five one-dayers in South Africa after the Ashes in August yep. and into September next year. So at least two bilateral tours. And sure. I'd imagine that even though they're not playing any one-day cricket at home this summer, they'll find a way to squeeze a couple of more series in, mindful of the of the World Cup cycle. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe not quite so much compared to the, the glut of T20 we've just experienced before right. this World Cup. But, look, there'll be enough, that's for sure. Yeah, just that in a, in a, a different kind of uh, lead-up year, they might be playing 21 days sure. and they yep. probably won't be. There's also been this incongruity of teams playing warm-up games for the T20 World Cup while the T20 World Cup has already started. So the yes. qualifying phase ongoing, but the teams who are already in the Super 12s, the eight who've qualified playing warm-up games amongst themselves. Um, Australia finished up a three-match series against England, losing it 2-0 and getting rained off when they would have lost the third one. That was, that was pretty much irretrievable at that point. So England dominating those early stages. And then Australia played a really weird warm-up game against India at the Gabba, where they didn't let anybody in to watch the game. And um, it was the most diffident sort of match, you know, bowlers not running back to the stumps, nobody talking, just just sort of having a bit of a hit in the middle until it got really intense in the last couple of overs when Australia were chasing and lost four wickets from the last four balls of the game yeah. to lose by six runs. Yeah, it felt like pandemic cricket again yeah. all of a sudden with no fans in. I think that's uh, something they'd, li- they'd like to have back. Uh, there were certainly fans in at warm-up games played at the MCG last week. I'm not sure why they didn't have scope to have maybe one section open to the public. Mm. Of course it costs a lot of money to 
to let people into a ground because of the stewards required and all the health and safety and so on. I'm, sure. not, I'm not being flippant when, when, when making this point, but yeah. there should have been people in watching that that was low-hanging fruit. Maybe it was because they would have known being the Indian team they would have got 20,000 people there. Or that might have been the real reason. Right. Because you can't really charge money. You can't really charge tickets for a warm-up game. No, therefore, no, not really. Therefore, it just ends up costing money. Yes, yeah. yes, that's right. But, mm. yeah, the, the bits and bobs I watched when we were flicking channels yesterday, Jeff, suggested to me that, yeah, the, the tempo wasn't there until the very end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you say, four wickets in the last over. Australia haven't finished well in these games. We've been watching the, True. The, those against England. A couple of times they, they sort of spluttered to the line mm. and, of course, not, not quite getting the job done yesterday when they should have, albeit in a non-competitive game. That's something they'll be they'll be thinking about going into the real stuff, which for them starts against New Zealand on Saturday at the SCG. And, and what you said off the top as well, it is incongruous that we are many games into a World Cup, or at least how it's described as a World Cup, even though it hasn't started for a series of other nations, which... Mm. Only goes to underscore and highlight the fact that as much as they say this is the World Cup and we're treating it like it's the World Cup as professionals and the work that we're doing, but let's be honest amongst ourselves, like it isn't the World Cup. Yeah, the this cricket organisation is not treating it like it's the World no, Cup. No, it's a qualifying tournament bunged on the start of a World Cup to make yeah. it look, look like it's a more inclusive event. Now, sure. we know we, we, the next World T20 will, will be mm. a bigger event. So this is the last time probably it'll, it'll play out like this. But still, yeah. it's not perfect. The last time we have the, the car and caravan kind of situation as far as the structuring goes. Uh, Australia were playing their T20s in Canberra. A bit of Canberra news coming through. The yes. PM's 11 game will be held in November and it'll be a multi-day affair. So a four-day game against <laughs> West Indies and that serves as their warm-up for the test matches. So rather than playing a state team or whatever it is as they may have done in the past with Brian Lara hitting six fours in an over again to Andy Bickle at Bell Reeve Oval for Australia A. Yes. They'll be playing the PM's 11 in Canberra in a four-day affair, coached by Andre Borovic, who yeah. we've spoken about once before on the show, who's, who's a real star on the rise as a coach yep. uh, now that he's got that assistant gig with the national men's team and uh, and he's leading this PM's 11. And John O'Wells, the Canberra specialist, will be his, his offside coach. So this is quite fun. I like this. I was pleased to see that. I've done a lot on the PM's 11 both when working in politics and working uh, yeah. in journalism. So, I mean, the history of it goes back a really long way. It was brought back by Bob Hawke in 1984, which was a very famous affair because where David Boone made a century and got himself into the test team. It was Dennis Lilly's last competitive game for Australia as well in sort of short-form cricket. But since then, it, it was always a 50-over game or a one-dayer until about four or five years ago when they were kind of relegating it to T20 status. And that's what it felt like. It felt like oh, we're obliged to play this game in Canberra. We'll, we'll, we'll tuck it in when there's a T20 series going on and we'll make it the T20 warm-up. Mm. This elevates it. Mm. I, I'm a big fan of the PM's 11 being given first-class status and being used as a, a proper warm-up game. Yeah. I hope that the PM side... Will uh, it be first-class or are they going to do like a 15-players-a-side uh, sort of jobby? I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Like, this game historically has always had list day status or T20 status yeah. more recently. I'd, I'd be surprised if it was relegated from there. Yeah, I, I think it will. And there has always been a tradition of having a Canberran in there. I'm not sure whether John O'Wells played in it. He probably did. I suspect he did at I think one he stage did. or He's another. Nice. I think he played in a couple of them. Yeah, I've talked on the podcast before about when Nathan Lyon wasn't picked in uh, 2010 uh, and was furious about it and ended up preparing an absolute road and Chris Gale hit 160 in response to in Lyon a 50 preparing the pitch. In a 50-over game, wasn't that one? Yeah, I, it was I'm, a, it was a 50, sure. he hit his 165 balls or something like that in yeah. a really high-scoring affair. Tom Cooper, who we were watching earlier today, made 100 in that game for... 
the PM's 11, yep. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, so I'm not planning on going to Canberra for it, but I guess I'm open to going to Canberra for it. It's yeah. a, in a bit of a break in the schedule for you and me. So yeah. if the right gig comes along uh-huh. and maybe we would go to Canberra for a week. If the right person were to ask, <laughs> I would consider my answer. Yes, we'll go through a process say. as Ross Lyon might say. <laughs> um, um, Cricket Australia going through a process at the AGM. They had their annual general meeting, filed the uh, the financials, a $5 million loss yeah. last year. Not entirely surprised. I think they knew because the TV rights bungle with the UK last year. And I say bungle, it's just they didn't get anywhere near the money they thought they would for the previous deal where BT paid a a shed load for. I can't remember the exact figure, but they more than anyone's ever spent for that rights arrangement. That's BT, the broadcasting network, not Brian Taylor. Correct. There was no no roaming roaming Brian, (laughs) thankfully, although I'm sure it'll be considered at one point or another. Yeah, so this new arrangement didn't have the same dollar value to it and thus CA booked a deficit on that basis according to the report. So yeah, that was the main headline takeout that usually an Ashes summer earns you a four-year cycle they work on. The India yep. year and the Ashes year gets you usually, uh, typically, a, a significant profit and you make, they make a loss in the other two years and, and yeah. it balances out, near enough balances out. Mm. But yeah, making a loss in an Ashes year is, is unusual. They've uh, appointed an ethics commissioner, which is interesting. So this is Dr Simon Longstaff, who's the same fellow who did the review, uh, the, the, the famous review into Australian cricket culture for the ethics centre or whatever it was called that he was working for. Gets good gigs. He gets good gigs. They say, uh, in the new role, Dr Longstaff will have direct access to the CA chair and board to advise on ethical matters that might arise, including but not limited to administration, governance, transparency and on or off field behaviour. Which is interesting in the light of things that we've heard through this week about how CA is trying to approach some ethical questions and, and I mean there are quite a few thorny ones that might need somebody to help guide you through how to make the right decision. Quite possibly I mean we're on to about um, iteration four of the David Warner story this week so mm-hmm. Dan Brady wrote a uh, and he's been the narrator of this all the way through for the age he wrote a piece about like how did this actually happen the Warner band and it was a really good piece because he it was kind of a refresher, and you had this in your book as well, but they considered banning Warner, Smith and Bancroft for life that night. Not mm. the night of the incident, but when, when the board first met on their teleconference. When the, when the 48-hour investigation had been done. Yeah, yeah, they're like, let's ban them for life. Which, again, like, what a ridiculous overreaction that would have been. But that was, for a, at least a moment, the prevailing view around that table. And they, mm. they took a beat, they slept on it, and they came back with these sanctions. The other point was that David Warner had been effectively put on notice after the... Faf du Plessis incident um, and the, sorry, Quinton de Kock incident, Faf du Plessis wearing the towel, but it was de Kock yep. in the corridor when they were yep. walking off at, at Durban a month earlier. Mm. And according to this report, it was said to him, if you fuck up again, you will never captain Australia in any format again. And it was yeah. used as an exercise in trying to corral Warner, having just been captain of the T20 side, which he loved doing. So they tried to use that as a stick and a carrot to a point, saying, you improve your behaviour and, and that white ball team might be yours. Then sandpaper happens, so they 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 given him this warning no more than a month earlier that he'd mm-hmm. been a captain again. So that's the backstory to why he was given the life ban. But as we've seen last week, CA have put a statement out, and I'll read from it. Among the items discussed was a possible amendment to the Code of Conduct in respect to long-term sanctions. The amendment would allow a person to request a penalty that they had accepted to be reviewed after an appropriate period of time. And this goes back to Warner accepting the life ban for sure. captaincy when it went down in 2018. Mm. But now, 
they're opening the door to him having recourse ahead of the Big Bash League in January. Yeah, and, and I'll probably hold off pontificating about the wisdom or otherwise of the decision going either way until we actually know what it is. Sure. Because it's 99% that they're going to say that he's free to captain again but Fuck, maybe I hope they so. won't imagine they don't I mean, imagine they go through this whole process and go actually we're going to we're, we're going to stick with it we're going to stick with it be funny um, you know we, you've got to look for comedy value in True. things at times but it, it is interesting that it's being presented as this all happened a long time ago it happened in 2018 like if this was a demerit point on your license it would have just expired you know about six months ago right so yeah. You know, go easy on the, oh, it was a different time back then. It was a different time back then. The prevailing attitudes were different. Like, the Warner sort of camp is trying to make out that this is ancient history and, and thus we should all move on. It was three and a half years ago. Well, it was four and a half years ago. And I, I, I think that uh, it's going to be five years in, you know, it'll be 2023 when, mm. when this is considered. It'll be, you know, nearly five years, right? So I agree. It's not like, you know, it's a decade that's elapsed. It's not Hannibal going over the mountains. But it's going on five years and... I don't know. My, my sense has been from the outset that it was a silly, it was a silly thing, and the reason I provided that that context before through that Brito piece was mm-hmm. to say that, you know, these were unusual times. This was a, an altered state of consciousness that Australia was collectively going through, from prime minister to every talkback caller to anyone mm-hmm. who was anyone. You can probably find comments from you and yeah. me if you've tried hard enough where we said things that we probably would take back from that week given that yeah, yeah. it was just an elevated unusual experience it was the biggest story in the global game it was the biggest story in Australia full stop yeah. and there was a sense that something had to be done and that's why they went as hard as they did for something that until that point was receiving well, it wasn't even a manuscript well you'd remember the ICC had it as a, a, it a was three a point four, a four yeah, pointer four point Demerit, so it could be up to a ban of a maximum of one test match. Yeah, yeah. And maybe not even that. It could be, yeah, it was like three, it, with some discretion, it could be three points or four points, something like that. And, and so. I'm not saying that was appropriate either, but simply that you know, they went as hard as they possibly yeah. could. And would that now sure. be, if they, if this was happening tomorrow, would they mm. do the same? Probably not. But I, I would again underline, Warner being banned from captaincy is not because he tampered with the ball, it's because he tanked a younger player's career in that team. He put Cameron Bancroft yeah. in the middle of that situation. No, sure, but I think, that, I think that Warner misbehaving again on a grand scale, even if Bancroft wasn't involved, he still would have received that sanction. Mm. It's kind of the point that... We're getting a better understanding of now. If you're talking about ethics and having an ethics advisor, um, that is interesting in the realm of sponsorship. So Cricket Australia and the ICC both getting very deep into NFT stuff, crypto stuff this week, announcing, well, Cricket Australia announcing new partnerships, the ICC flogging the hell out of this, you know, NFT nonsense that they've got, trying to cash in on their digital Ponzi scheme before it all collapses. The grounds are covered in it. There are... Banners up for it everywhere. Lots of you know encouraging people to get into the crypto markets, which is great when you know people have been losing money right, left, and centre doing exactly that. And then we come to this discussion about fossil fuels and climate change. So this this is interesting. Where the Cricket Australia had a deal with Alinta Energy. Alinta were the ones who wanted to pull out of that deal. CA is sort of giving the impression that it was a, a mutual divorce, but 
it was certainly, from my understanding of it, it was precipitated by one party and acquiesced to by the other rather than the other way around. And a sponsor who'd been there for a while. I mean, back to Sandpaper, yeah. they were the last sponsor standing. Well, indeed, they stepped well, they, up the they sponsorship. They came in when, when Magellan left. Magellan left, yeah. that's right, yeah. So, and then it was interesting when, when Pat Cummins was being spoken to uh, in doing his media commitments, he said that he'd, he'd come to a position of being opposed to being associated with a big fossil fuel company. He didn't want to be wearing the name. He didn't want to be doing their advertising. And he thought that uh, as cricketers, they wanted sponsors who they felt that they could ethically stand behind and that that's something that he's voiced specifically to Cricket Australia at the top levels. And whether that's going to be taken into consideration going forward, I don't know. But it's interesting that that's now an explicit talking point that, that you that you can't align yourselves with these kind of companies. Yeah, it, it reflects the fact that it's a different kind of Australian team and has been moving that way for a while, uh, that they have a view on broader issues and they're happy to, to voice them. I've seen some criticism of Cummins today saying, oh, well, he was happy to do advertisements for Alinta when it served him and now he's uh, kicking off about it. Well, it's, it's, not, it's a bit more nuanced than that. I mean, he was contractually obliged to yes. do as he was doing and now he's willing to go out there as test captain, as a leader in cricket. But as we know, mm. with that megaphone, I mean, that, that old cliched second most important job in the country and all the rest of it, when you yep. speak as Australian test captain, people are listening more than they would if you're a member of the ranks, which is important, I think, in all of this. And also, it's forward-looking. It's not mm. backward-looking. He's mm. saying into the future. So CA put a statement out today making it very, very clear that Pat Cummins' coffees with Nick Hockley, which he references in the interview with, with, with Dan Bredig again, he had this story this morning, didn't influence the arrangement with Alinta. But no. the story doesn't say that. The story doesn't say that Pat Cummins convinced CA to pull out of this deal. Yeah, that, 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 well, that's CA what, didn't pull out. I've seen some shock jocks jump on that, and I've seen some of the usual suspects on Twitter jump on that. But the story is pretty clear that this arrangement was coming to an end anyway, yeah. and Cummins are saying into the well, future... It's they, come to an end early. So early, Alinta yep. have pulled out early. But, but, but nonetheless, it's coming to an end this year rather than 2023. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking... Prospectively, he, he wants to see CA align themselves with with companies that, that, that don't, let's call it for what it is, greenwash with sport or sports wash their brand when mm-hmm. they don't have a particularly good story to tell when it comes to damaging the climate, no matter what caveats they put in there about renewable energies and all the rest of it. The, the meta-narrative around these companies is that what they do, their day-in, day-out business, is, is not aligned to that of, well, at the very least, Cummins and... I suspect a, you know, a fairly substantial majority of the Australian team now who, are, like all of us, been forced to think more about these matters as the planet continues to warm. Well, they're not really aligned to fundamental human survival um, as opposed to a bunch of other people getting really rich while everything falls apart. And so that's why it's a particularly grinding juxtaposition that in the same week as all this is happening, the ICC very happily and cheerfully announced their partnership <coughs> with Aramco oil. Now, if you don't know anything about Aramco, that's the national oil company of Saudi Arabia. Uh, This is from the ICC release. From producing approximately one in every eight barrels of the world's oil supply to developing new energy technologies, our global team is dedicated to creating impact in all that we do. Well, you could say that, you know, submerging various Pacific islands is creating impact. This is essentially the world's biggest oil producer. The numbers that we're able to put together on this suggest that 
close to 4.5% of all human CO2 emissions since 1965 have come from this company. Like, this is an absolute behemoth in yep. terms of developing oil. They're, at the moment, aiming to increase oil production rather than look to develop other technologies, which some oil companies are doing. And then you come to the fact that they're the national bankroll, essentially, of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. A joint that is not, you would say, aligned with... Maybe Simon Longstaff would have something to say about the ethics of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, if you looked at it that way. This is complex terrain for us this week, Jeff. I mean, the ICC put a statement out before the World Cup about safeguarding. Uh, it includes a reference to a number of uh, what they describe types of behaviour um, that they don't condone and could lead to ejection from the venue and having your accreditation stripped. And it includes a dot point which uh, says, if you disparage or criticise the game of cricket, the ICC, the event, other participants, cricket supporters and or any sponsor or commercial partner of the ICC or the event. So huh. I don't want to get my accreditation stripped nor do you. So I think we've got to play in a pretty narrow tram tracks on this one, which of course is ridiculous, by the way, but so it is. Uh, the, the guidelines are pretty clear. If we go on a 10-minute conversation about the appropriateness of this sponsorship, we might find ourselves um, watching these games from outside the stadium. Well, I think that's a, a relatively small price in the greater scheme of things. No, but I'm, I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm intentionally being facetious to a point, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like they, they it, make it... That's an absurd qualification to have yeah. when you, you're talking about media attending your event and, sure. and covering your event. So Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, I mean, you, you would probably have heard about Jamal Khashoggi being murdered in the uh, Saudi embassy in Turkey uh, recently, being cut into pieces by uh, people working for the King of Saudi Arabia. Um, the fact that that's, I mean, that's just a known fact. That's not like some crazy conspiracy theory. That's something that's very clearly known about no one seems to mind when they're um, getting their photos taken as world leaders with Mohammed bin Salman all good all good he can rock up to the summits and and pal around with everybody uh, in March this year Saudi Arabia had their country's largest max, mass execution in history 81 people executed at the same time sure they can beat uh, it next year if they it's yeah, time if they're good this enough. time if they're good enough um, you can get executed for being an atheist for your sexual preferences for various kinds of rights activism intensely oppressive regime particularly for women. There have been some recent advances just in the last sort of three or four years in terms of women being allowed to leave the country unaccompanied by a male guardian if they're over 21. Well, that's, you know, real real big concessions, these kinds of things. But it, a lot of that's basically window dressing. Nearly 400,000 people dead in the war in Yemen over the last few years that the Saudis have been prosecuting with the blockades that they've had in place that have been starting famines. This is the joint that the ICC has decided to get into bed with, not just the fact that it's the biggest fossil fuel creator in the world. And, you know, admittedly, that relies on consumers, including all of us, using oil for transport and mm. all of the rest of it. But not, not just the environmental impact, but a place that is ethically bankrupt, uh, that, is, that is a barbaric regime in so many ways. And... It is truly staggering that the ICC are willing to smile and pat themselves on the back and say, oh, look, we signed a big sponsorship deal for the next however many years. The ground here is covered in Aramco stuff, you know, in between the crypto bits. The, uh, it comes up on the site screens. It comes up on the boundary hoardings on the digital boards. They obviously had all of this ready to go for the start of this tournament, um, and it's supposed to be around for a very long time to come. Yeah, it's pretty clear that this is a, a conversation that is getting more airtime than it did before. Uh, 
of course, in Formula One, this is increasingly becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Which they're also sponsoring. Yeah, but um, the, look, it, it was the blind eye that you were referring to before was happily taken as the default mm. option. I think now there is scrutiny over these types of commercial yep. arrangements that that, um, that go to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And also we've seen in, in Premier League football as recently as last year with Newcastle United. So this is obviously something that deserves considerable scrutiny and... Yes, the fact that it is at a global tournament, it is at a World Cup. There are so many more eyes on this than there would be a bilateral series. The the press release you referred to earlier and how gushing it was about the company they've now piled up with. I mean, there's a lot here. Um, And uh, I don't know where this goes, Mm. but I suspect it's going to get harder and harder for organisations like the ICC to get into arrangements like this. You know, it's, it's akin to say, them signing a, a cigarette sponsor. The Wills World Cup back in mm. 1996, that, that could never happen now because tobacco advertising is barred in, in all the places where cricket's played, or at least all the places that we've seen global tournaments played in, in recent years. And I expect that's where we'll get to here as well, and likewise, NFT slash gambling. You know, we, we talked about Pat Cummins earlier and, and cricketers more generally. A number of months ago, they were all lining up with NFTs, and we saw the... Australian Cricketers Association have their say on this. We've seen CA put out releases and all the rest. We're going to laugh at this in five years' time. We're going to we're going to we're going to find this mm. farcical that we let cricket put not just a toe in the water, but a whole foot, whole leg, whole limb into the water on on NFTs. When I would guess, I would assume that within a generation, gaming advertising will go the same way as cigarette sponsorship did in the mid-90s. Like, that's the trajectory here. Even if we think at the I moment that, that it's overwhelming how much of it there is, there will, we, we are reaching the tipping point. Like, this is this is not just something that people are ignoring anymore. That's that's the, the trajectory in some places where, where there are alternatives. But you look at something like South African cricket, it's absolutely swimming in gambling advertising now because it's so short on cash and that's one of the places where cash can come in. So I, I don't think it is necessarily that everybody's moving towards a better future together. I think that there's, there's a lot more push for that in Australia at the moment, but I don't think that is the case. I think sports uh, gambling advertising and sports betting as a whole is vastly bigger in the US than it was some years ago. I mean, the the legalisations in the market there, every sports podcast or broadcast or anything in the US is absolutely slathered in gambling advertising now. Like, I'm not... I, I don't... Have, I don't share your optimism that it is going to get better. I think there'll, there'll be years. leadership in some parts of the cricket world and others will follow. Uh, maybe it is optimistic, but I, I, I just don't think it's long for this world. Certainly the countries that we live in, mm. I just don't expect gaming advertising will be something that we're consuming in a generation, and I think sport will play a role in the eradication of it, even if it feels like they're addicted to it at the moment. Mm. I, I know that, that that sounds contradictory, but as it was with cigarettes, which obviously that there was that enduring link between cricket and smoking mm. that that's been successfully decoupled in the last 25 years or so well there still is i mean <laughs> as far as professional athletes go i think you find more cricketers who quietly smoke than oh you, no no than sure would, but there's a difference between elsewhere. cricketers cho- anyone yeah. in the community choosing to smoke you can do what you want i've got yeah. no problem with people making their own decisions about um smoking or otherwise or drinking or gambling i've always you know maintained you can you can not support gaming advertising mm. and game and gamble yourself that that's fine it's more that the damage that we know that it does young influential people or, or rather the trajectory that we know that it sets them on from a really young age and the mm-hmm. way when their brains being wired and so on and the academic studies that have been done into this it's it's conclusive Sri Lankans pumping some sixes into the crowd at the moment as we record this 
But so much of it comes down to do you need money? And it's interesting that this stuff with the ICC, with Aramco, with Cricket Australia, with Alinta has come up this week as well when Netball Australia has been having this yeah. story around Hancock prospecting. That's the mining company that's owned by Gina Reinhart, who's the richest person in Australia. And Netball Australia were broke, basically, and they've been given a $15 million lifeline by Hancock to cover a whole lot of things to do with the game, uh, to put to invest money at different levels of development and all of the rest of it, and they've snatched at it because somebody's coming to the rescue of Netball Australia. But the players aren't happy because they don't want to be involved with a company that's a massive climate change contributor, mm, that's mm. led by a massive climate change denier, and that was started by Lang Hancock, who was a massive racist and generally terrible human being. They've got Indigenous players, Indigenous Australian netballers who don't want to be associated with that company. And so they were supposed to be wearing a sponsored uniform at the Constellation Cup uh, over the, the last few days. And they haven't been because the players have kicked off about it. Netball Australia has managed to buy itself some time with the new sponsor to try to uh, alleviate concerns is the way that they're sort of phrasing it. But you can't just talk someone down from the point of having a massive ethical problem with the way a sponsor goes about its business. So, I don't know. This is, this is interesting that, again, there's a player pushback against it. And it's, and it's fundamentally the same motivation from all of these companies. So, Megan Maurice wrote about this in The Guardian um, about sports washing in relation to the Hancock prospecting case. And this is the point she made that I think is really interesting. She said, There is not a consumer product being promoted. The fans flocking to cheer on the national team cannot duck down to the local shops and pick up some Hancock prospecting goods, <laughs> right? Like, that's exactly it. You can't sure. go, oh, I might just go and buy some Aramco products because you wouldn't even know where they are by the time they've filtered through the, the manufacturing lines and all the rest of it. Um, she says, What Hancock is buying is the right to stay relevant and warmly regarded in a society increasingly concerned with climate change and the role of mining companies in contributing to environmental destruction. And that's what all of these companies are doing. They're all trying to put some sort of cuddly association on things. Oh, it's just us, your friendly Gautama Adani uh, configuration. Look, we've got a, an end named after our company slash family at the stadium in Ahmedabad. You know, we're just part of the friendly cricket-loving community, not we're part of the people profiting from the destruction of the planet that everybody else lives on. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful paragraph. I mean, we said it at the start, this is straight up sports washing. That's what it's there for. You're right. It's not a consumer product. It's, a, it's the ability to stay relevant in polite society, mm -hmm. which, again, kind of comes back to what we were saying before when polite society, air quotes, has decided in the past that, that some organisations aren't fit for purpose principally tobacco there's been a way to move it on but yeah it feels like it's going to come to a head in netball and i guess it'll be a bit of a watch this space for other sports including cricket well it's going to be a massive story i think for weeks and and months to come so obviously we'll be keeping across that as best we can on the final word a little bit of cricket stuff that has come through let's uh, the england test squad for pakistan this is this is kind of interesting so the heavy on the batting Light on the bowling, essentially. So Joe Root's there with Ollie Pope, Harry Brook, Stokes captaining, Will Jacks in the squad, Liam Livingston in the squad, along with uh, Crawley Jennings back for another Asian tour, and Duckett. I've got Folks as the only keeper. And then I've got James Anderson with Ollie Robinson and Mark Wood, the three big-name quicks. Jamie Overton's got a gig in reserve, essentially, and Jack Leach has one spinner. So 
Curious. I mean, are they, are they looking? Is Livingston the second spinner in this yeah, squad? Yeah, obviously, it's quite a lot here, right? Um, taking one frontline spinner to Pakistan seems bold. The point I kept making to our English colleagues before coming over here was that you don't pick spinners in Pakistan to bowl sides out. You pick them to to keep it quiet between overs fifteen yeah. and seventy um, when you're yeah. at risk of the game getting away from you. You need to keep it at two and over. So or, a lot of responsibility on Or you on pick leech. them because you have to bowl 200 overs on the flattest pitch you've ever seen yeah. at yeah. Islamabad, and so you need someone whose arm is not going to fall off <laughs> after bowling 60 overs. Yeah, that, that's right. Basically, the old model of you know three quicks and a spin, it doesn't work over there. So it does suggest that Will Jacks is going to make his test debut. Maybe Liam Livingston mm-hmm. could fit in that 11 as well. I'm thrilled to see Keaton Jennings get recalled. I don't think he's being recalled because it's in, you know, in Asia, by the way. I think he just... Had a brilliant county campaign. He led the country, led Division One, uh, made some big hundreds where he had to bat for hours and hours. He made a triple and a double, and he fell one run short of a second double. And as we know, batting for hours and hours and hours in Pakistan, that's what gets you runs. It's about having the patience to go for a couple of days. Ben Duckett has earned his way back through a couple of great seasons at county level as well. He's a much different cricketer to the one that we'd remember from playing in Asia in 2016 then pouring a pint over Jimmy Anderson's head. He's got a bit more going for him now, as we saw in Pakistan recently. He's an outstanding sweeper, and I'm sure that'll translate to to test cricket as well, where sweeping in Pakistan was such a big asset for someone like Usman Khawaja when we were there back in March. Uh, Yeah, scrutiny over Livingston getting picked when he's only played eight first-class games since 2020, but he's kind of a triple threat because we know the way that he bats. I mean, he hit a ball out of the gabba last night. Mm -hmm. He bowls off-spin to left-handers and bowls leg-spin to right-handers. I mean, you know, if they want to pick him to do a number of different roles, and he's a fabulous fielder, I see their logic there. It's a little Mm -hmm. bit Maxwell ball, I suppose. Early days Maxwell ball, I mean by that. Where they were picking Glenn because they thought that, well... He might be able to, to contribute to winning a game on a number of different fronts. That, yep. That's what they're hoping Livingston will do as well. But who bowls all the overs? Well, I, I, think they'll, I think they'll play two quicks, thus the four seamers, right? They'll play two of the Anderson, Robinson, Wood, Jamie Overton combination mm. across the three test matches. Leach will play in all of them, and they'll use Jackson Livingston. So I guess what I'm saying is that they're not... I don't think they're going to do what Australia did and have two quicks bowl in all three test matches as Cummins and Stark did. I don't think that's the expectation, right? right? So it's three test matches in three weeks. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Anderson isn't playing three test matches in Pakistan yeah. in three weeks. But that means they're picking three bowlers. Well, no, but I'm saying that they'll have they'll have Stokes as the they'd have Stokes as the the auxiliary, you know, the the, the third seamer effectively. Okay. Then have the first spinner. In. But is is Livingston or Jacks batting at eight? Like how, well, how does this, this, this is it? They'll have flexibility. It'll be like right. a more. We saw England do this in in Asia back in 1617, where they had Moen Ali batting as low as eight. Uh, and being effectively the second spinner when Adil Rashid was sure. in the team. So I think it'll be an unusual configuration. It's an unusual squad, full stop. I'm really happy to see Jamie Overton in there, though. We know reverse swings, such a big deal in Pakistan. Jamie Overton reverses it. There was understandably some eyebrows raised at where's Matty Potts. Well, I haven't seen any evidence of Matty Potts reversing the ball. Mm-hmm. Jamie Overton does. Like, mm-hmm. that is... You know, seamers are only really relevant in Pakistan when the ball is very, very new and very, very old. The rest of the time, you're just trying to keep things cool and quiet when those tracks are, are flat concrete, which is what we saw, and I mm. assume that it'll be the same when England are there in December. So, yeah, it, it's... I don't think it'll be a conventional test 11, but we'll see. We'll, we'll judge it on what it is. I should note as well that Alex Lees was left out. So, having played all the test matches through the summer when they were pretty keen to keep the winning side as it was, but they, they reached the end of the road with Lees. When they announced their contracts last week as well, Zach Crawley kept his full contract, which is the highest rank of contract. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Crawley gets picked 
on the basis that they believe one day uh, he's going to be all things to all people, even though I suppose if you wanted to weigh it up, Crawley versus Lees, you, if you wanted to, you could probably form the case that Lees should play ahead of Crawley. But mm. Crawley did finish the summer with that really pleasant to watch half century at the Oval so maybe that's what got him over the line but but either way um, it's a nice be, world where, where a, a breezy 50 gets you an yeah, even yeah I know I know but, but, but Lees did deteriorate as his summer went on yeah. so if they were picking one of the two Crawley gets the nod but yeah he, he's a long way from being what I would describe as like a senior test cricketer yep. and he'll need to be in the next two years or there'll be no more of these contracts. And Stuart Broad is expecting a child, yep. thus is was not in consideration. It would have been interesting to see whether he'd got picked. I doubt he would have got picked for this squad had he been fit given, you know, the likelihood of getting bashed around. They, they, uh, might, have taken him, they might have taken him in an extended squad to have him around the group. Uh, they might have just had him there with Anderson. Because, yeah. you know, much having as him there and then not picking him, like, that's, that's worse than not having him around. But, Broad, but Broad's pretty used to being left out of the 11 overseas. Yeah. It's at home when he understandably gets shirty. You know, right. we saw Josh Butler play that assistant coach role in the T20s in Pakistan. Didn't play, was injured, but they just wanted him there. I, sure. I reckon Broad might have been in consideration for that, you know, spare part if... Mm-hmm. They weren't expecting, and thus he made himself unavailable. Women's Big Bash League has begun. Uh, got a couple of days before the World Cup started. Uh, it's unfortunate that most of the duration of it will be while the World Cup's happening, although at least the, the finals and the last week or so will be after the World Cup's done. Cracking start to the tournament this year. Sydney Sixers beat the Brisbane Heat, uh, hitting a six on the second last ball of the match. Maitland Brown, who's uh, wearing hot pink this time around. Uh, Elise Perry took wickets, bowled quick, looked good, made 55 of 48. She's dropped down to number three as well. And then made another half century in the second match, another win, so 58 of 44 balls against the Strikers. So this is interesting where there was that after the 2018 World Cup, the T20 World Cup, where she didn't have much to do in the Caribbean. They were bringing her in at number seven and she barely faced a delivery and wasn't really required. She came back and had a huge big bash after that as if to say, you know, I can still do this in T20 cricket. It just feels like this season's starting the same way. Yeah, I completely agree. She made 777 runs yep. after being a, a bits and pieces player and, and ended up, I know it didn't quite work out, didn't play in that World Cup final of 2020 but through injury, but, but would have, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think just as relevant is that I watched her bowl on telly in that first game. She's bowling quickly, which for Perry hasn't always been the case in the last couple of years. I, I quite like the veterans, you know, like Perry. And Susie Bates made 82 not out from 67 balls. She was she was close to retiring a couple of years ago when she mm, had that shoulder, shoulder surgery. But she's back and making runs, which is encouraging. The Heat got on the board after a shootout win against the Stars. They made 179 for three. That would have been unheard of when the mm. Big Bash started, the Women's Big Bash started in, in 2015. Now it's kind of a, a fairly standard occurrence where sides will make up towards 200. Ellie Johnson, 54 from 34. In the losing effort for the Stars, Winfield Hill made 74. Lauren Winfield Hill is having an incredible 2022 mm-hmm. in domestic cricket. I think they'll take her to the World Cup in South Africa in February, isn't it? February, March is when we're mm-hmm. in India, yep. the T20 World Cup. They'll take her as the reserve keeper. Her gloves in that Rachel Hayhoe Flint final were just as important as her batting. I'm not saying Amy Jones will be overtaken, but if she were to break a finger, she'd be who you'd want next in mm-hmm. wicket keeping for England right now. 
so yeah, she's with the Stars this year. She hasn't gone particularly well when playing in the Big Bash before, but I, I reckon she'll dominate this year. How about Hurricanes beat the Thunder? Three for 18 for Molly Strano. She's still the all-time leading wicket-taker in Big Bash history. 123 <laughs> she's got. Jess Jonathan is tracking her down. She's only five wickets behind, but Jonathan's played more games for fewer wickets. I'll always have a soft spot for Molly Strano, um, well, for two reasons. One, watching her do a uh, an imitation of the Shane Warne ball of the century with Mike uh-huh. Gadding in a hotel at about two in the morning during the women's test of 2015 when she was there as a tourist which was ever so entertaining but also that um, you know she's used the big bash to to get herself into the national team she was probably the first player to to use that competition yeah to help her jump a couple of rungs on the ladder because she bolts so well at the very start and yeah, As you Mooney, say, still still doing Beth it. Mooney and Molly Strano. Yeah, that, yeah, they're kind of like season. yeah, yeah, you know, uh, WBBL edition one stars mm-hmm. who who've had these international careers. Mm-hmm. I know Strano's hasn't been a, a set and forget. She's been in and out of the squad, but she was there in the in the 2020 World Cup. Yeah, she was. She she still has Katy Perry's boots. Um, <laughs> Sophie Molyneux, another one of those who got herself into the national team. Uh, she took four for and made runs uh, as the Renegades nearly beat the Strikers. Sort of held them until the last over, mm. trying to defend a low score. Um, the Sixers kept going. They beat the Stars by 27 runs, with Healy making some runs at the top of the order. Sydney Thunder going like a busted. 88 for 8. This was made. a throwback, wasn't it? This, oh. was, this was back to WBBL 1. This was. Uh, 88 for 8 in their 20 overs against Perth. Marazan yeah. Cap, four overs, one maiden, one for 15, and Alana King is having a a top 2022 20, as well, one for 17. And yes, they uh, went on to, to lose in 14.5 overs. Sophie Devine, 44 not out. Mm-hmm. You talk about a player who's been dominating uh, from the get-go in the Big mm-hmm. Bash. That, that's uh, that's Sophie now doing so for the Perth Scorchers. Keeps on keeping on. And then in the last uh, day or so, Hobart, dreadful, made 109 for nine. Perth got it in 14 overs easily. Mooney and Maddie Green made some runs quickly there. So we've been waiting for her to come good for about five years, Maddie Green, uh, yes. at international level, maybe one day. And then the game today, Brisbane Heat versus the Renegades. Brisbane made 180 for one today. Georgia hell. Redmayne, 98 not out. Good cricketer. Grace Harris, 65 off not many. And the Renegades had a go in reply. They made 159 for six in the end. No big scores, but everybody scored quickly. They went after it, the right sort of attitude to take. But opening stand for Brisbane of 165. That's the third highest ever in the competition. And Redmayne, 98 not out to finish it off. With a few balls to go in the last over, she smacks a four, hits a two, and then gets a single to take it to 98. And she ha- there's three balls to go uh, from the third last ball. And right. she has to take the run because otherwise everyone will think you're an sure. asshole if you don't <laughs> do it, right? So she takes a single, but there are two balls to go. And Laura Harris is on strike, who can hit just about everything for six. And swing and a miss, dot ball. Like, she either needed to get a six or a single. If she hits a six, you say, oh, well, team thing. If she gets a single puts uh, Redmayne back on strike with one ball to go, gives her the chance at a ton. And so Harris is facing the last ball of the match um, and in the end just hits that for six because there's nothing else she can do with it. So Redmayne, 98, not out, stranded, couldn't quite get there. She's taken a big step in the last couple of years, Georgia Redmayne. She's been in those Australian squads without playing, but, Mm. yeah, I I watched her play in the Fairbreak Invitational earlier this year before she got crook. She was dominating that too, so she can't be far away from Aussie Cap. And surely Dr Shelley Nitschke would like another doctor in the team. Exactly. Doctor in the 11. Actually, she'd be a good final word interview, Georgia Redmayne, because she was... um, on the front line of the COVID response back when the pandemic started in 2020. So she's got a lot of stories to tell, which are far mm. beyond the cricket field. Speaking of great yarns, 
We'll talk about the Sheffield Shield next week because we're mid-round right now, so there's no point really going into it. But at the Junction Oval yesterday, the debut of Rawatha Kelapota. Now, this is proper story time, dream sequence stuff, you know. Uh, dusty old bastard, say what you want. This guy is 31 years of age. He got to Australia 10 years ago, having played 20 first-class games in Sri Lanka. Okay. Played in the DDCA, my old competition, for mm-hmm. Berwick for nine years. Got picked up by South Melbourne last year. Played District 1s, average 16. And he has leapfrogged all of the spinners Victoria have got, including a couple of wrist spinners on their books, to play in their first home game of the year at the Junction Oval. Jack so, Iverson. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great yarn. I, I, I'm not sure whether he's eligible to play for Australia. I'm, I'm not across the, the details to that extent. But because Scott Boland's missing, because the Australian selectors mm-hmm. encouraging for him have said they, they want to manage his workload in the build-up to the, the test summer. So that vacancy, they went for the second spinner. Yeah, and in comes Rawantha Kelapotha, so a, a name to watch. He did take a wicket as well. On the first day, Cameron Bancroft on an even 100 was mm. the man he dismissed to, to get in the book for the first time in the Sheffield Shield. His yeah. first first class wicket in a decade. That is the Jack Iverson trajectory. You're playing fourths one year. You're playing <laughs> district first the yeah, next year. Yeah. State cricket the next year. Test that means he will be playing a test match for Australia in the 2023-24 season. 23 Ashes. Watch this space. Yeah, come on. And who knows? I mean, I like Mitch Swepson, but I'm a big Mitch Swepson fan, but I think that he may not be as quite so highly thought of now as he was before he played Test cricket, which is mm. which is one of those cruel something things that, happens that happens to, to cricketers. Yeah, yeah. They, they play and then they they're great until they haven't when they haven't played. They're going to be world beaters, and then when they have, you see what they can do. All right, Jeff. Before we get into our interview today, time for nerd pledge. Nerd pledge. Yes, it's the game that we play on the final word with all the nice people on the internet. The reverse quiz, where you quiz us. Here's how it works. Podcasts are free, generally. This one is, and some people like to help us make it by sending in contributions that are not normal amounts of currency, but they are very specific amounts of currency that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to figure out what the relationship is. Today's number comes in from Fake Patch Clap, Ah. or as his uh, real name is, Matt Wust, who once joined up pretending to be his friend Patch Clap, who also joined up, so we had two Patch Claps, and now we've worked out who the fake one is and who the real one is, because this is the detective work we do on this show. Yeah, and the best bit, wasn't it that the real Patch Clap signed up without realising that his friend Matt had signed him up as a birthday gift or something like that? Yes, as as the fake one. I think the fake one signed up first, and then the real one signed up, (laughs) and then, so then the fake one heard... The real one heard his number on the show but was confused because it wasn't his number because it was the number of the fake one. And away we went. So uh, Fake Patch, as he will forever be known, has sent through $6.48. 648. This is the number we have to work with. And this is what I have done, Adam. We all know that only England cap numbers go as high as 648, so it's not going to be that. Uh, James Treadwell. Yes. I had completely forgotten that James Treadwell ever played Test cricket. He got... Now, you'll correct me because you've gone through... I know he got two Test matches in the Caribbean in 2015, and I think he got a cheeky debut somewhere before that. I don't think that was his debut in the Caribbean. I think there was like a... He was a the like third a spinner. to a... Yeah, it might have even indeed been the previous time they went to Bangladesh. Uh-huh. But, yeah, he's been playing in the road safety league. Oh. Certainly last year he played in it. Right. He's not been retired long, James Tribwell. Yeah. But he's probably stopped working out, would be my assessment of the situation. In the in the increasingly inaccurately named legends teams that have been going around <laughs> yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. The, the road safety yeah, competition. I think, I think he played... Uh, he might have even captained England's team last year. Either way, he was part of it. This yeah. year, I don't think they won a game. 
uh, a bloke who I worked with last year, Stuart Meeker, who was so retired. I mean, so, so very retired that he was driving a van around like uh-huh. Bali and he went to Ukraine to drop off a supply truck. Right. He drove to the border of Ukraine during the, the, the spring to take supplies. It was really cool. He's a lovely man. Mm. But they gave him the call and said, how do you feel about putting the bowling boots back on, having oh. not played uh, for a fair... Well, he hadn't played since last year, but hadn't played for England since 2011. How do you feel about being a legend? Yeah. He, he enjoyed his time there. He I just realised that there. I was ripping off Douglas Adams with that line. He had the book Mostly Harmless that was called the the fifth book in the increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy. <laughs> um, so that's where I was going with, with the Legends team from before. Yeah. So 6.48, right. As a team score, only been made twice in test matches, neither of them very interesting, except at both times that happened in the last 10 years against Bangladesh. Okay. So never in test cricket before the last decade, then twice against Just the same Just how I team. like it. Bangladesh, poor fucks. Um, Conceding 648 twice. One of them was Marlon Samuels making a double. Mm-hmm. DJ Bravo, Shivnaran Chandapal all going big. The other one last year in Gaul when Dimuth Karunaratna made a double at 100 and Dananjaya. Dananjaya. Tunned up alongside him. Uh, there was a 6 for 48 at the same ground at Gaul in 2014 when Pakistan made a big score, Sri Lanka made a bigger score, and then Ranganahara, final word, fave, took 6 for 48 to bowl them out for 180 including Yunus Khan and Ms. Bolhak, mm. and uh, set up a small chase that Sri Lanka knocked off. And after chasing all of these things around, I thought, something I remember, and, and so a lot of what we do on Nerd Pledge is trying to remember what certain people liked or have done <laughs> in the past, and I was thinking, I know at least one of the patch claps was a big Steve Smith fan. And listening back to the archive episodes, I re- remember we used to call him Sniffer. I don't remember Sniffer. why. Sniffer yeah. Smith. Yeah. Um, they were big Sniff fans, or at least one of them was. And I don't know if it was both of them or one of them or if it was the fake one or the real one, but I know that one of them had a Steve Smith-related Nerd Pledge number at some point. So I thought, if it is this, here's an interesting thought. What's the, what's the high point of Steve Smith? We know he's not quite the same player now. Uh, we know he was amazing before the ban except for that last series and then he comes back with a bang what's the absolute high tide high water mark I, I remember Smith? I remember he, his average between the, the thing I used to always come back to in my articles about Stephen Smith mm. was when he started his amazing run Oval mm-hmm. 2013 mm-hmm. to wherever we were up to at that point mm-hmm. in that stretch between Oval 2013 mm-hmm. and Old Trafford 2019 mm-hmm. so six years mm-hmm. he averaged 77 yeah. and made all of his 20 Five to that point, Tess entries. Yes. And he's going up and up and up until he makes the 211, is it, at Old Trafford? Uh, might have been a bit more than that. Was it 211? It might have had a... It was 215 at Lords in 2015. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah, it was 211. Yeah. 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 He makes the 211 and then he makes the 82, I'm going to say, or the 80 flat at the Oval in the first inning. He also makes 80-odd in the second inning at Old Trafford, doesn't he, when he gets, yes. out, um, he gets out playing a, a tennis shot yeah. when they were chasing declaration runs. Right, nearly twin tons for the yeah. second time in the, in the season after having never done it before in his life in any form of cricket. Yes. But it's the second innings at the Oval where he makes 20-odd and, and, and doesn't, Ruins it. doesn't maintain the upward and upward and upward march. And so... And that, after- also, that also is the day when teams realised... 
however many years too late yeah. like getting caught around the corner. Leg slip. Was that Broad or Stokes? Wokes? Stokes. It was Stokes. One of them. Stokes took the catch. I think it might have been Wokes, but he's got a feeling it was Wokes. But either way, yeah. it was round the corner and like, mm-hmm. ah, and then Neil Wagner's like, I'll do that for yeah. an entire series and see how you go. Yeah, Wokes got him LBW in the first innings. Oh, right. Might have been Broad. Maybe it was Broad yeah. bouncing yeah. him at the, at the ribs and Stokes took the catch around the corner. But after that fourth test match where he makes the 211 and the other 80, that is the highest point of the test batting average in the career of Stephen P.D. Smith, and it is 64.8 runs. And I contend to you, fake patch clap, that that is your number, 648 AUD. I'd be very surprised if that's not right. Uh, Thank you, fake patch clap, and real patch clap for that matter, for your support of what we've done across the journey. Patreon.com forward slash the final word if you like what we're doing. We're making a lot of podcasts at the moment. As you rightly say, this is a free thing, but um, it is... Increasingly expensive to make Currently, the free things. We're so. making nine episodes a week <laughs> during the World Cup. So if, if you wish to be part of the fun, uh, and not only to support us financially, but also to be part of the Discord channel, which is yeah. a beautiful thing, all you need to do is send in a pledge to patreon.com forward slash the final word. And if you're a new pledger, your number will be dealt with in about three or so months, be it on the weekly show or on story time, which is a, a whole other beast. A whole other A whole thing. other thing which we're going to make throughout the Australian summer. Go and find it in the feed. It'll be quicker than us trying to explain it. Right, let's take a break on the show. And when we come back, it will be Shieldberry talking to Adam. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's Final Word with Adam Collins and with me as our guest today is a man who has seen and covered more England Test cricket than any other. It's the great Shield Berry. Hello, Shield. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. You've told me in the past that you've never so much as listened to a podcast before, be it ours or anyone else's. So this should be quite the experience. How are you going? Well, it's a new era, isn't it, in uh, cricket broadcasting and uh, things going on off the field as well as on the field. And um, yeah, I date back a bit, and you're one of the more modern pioneers, Adam, of uh, doing things like podcasts. I remember when I first met you, Shield, it was the 2015 Ashes series. And of course, you know, I'd, I'd read your work as a kid, you know, growing up and loving the game around the world. And of course, when you were editing the Wizard Almanac for a number of years there, 20, what was it, 2008, 2011, around that era, something like that? Well, it was for four years, and you'd remember them better than I do. <laughs> Yeah, well, in any case, I remember being placed next to you at the Oval Test match in 2015 in the outside press area and having spoken to you throughout the series and getting a, a real sense of how you kind of go about your work and your match reporting process. Not work, of... Adam. It's not work, <laughs> Well, your match reporting, you know, you were a classic of the of the craft, really. I, I liked how you... I mean, let's be honest, it is hedonism by another name, isn't it? It is. It is. And we'll, and we'll come to that in reference to the book Beyond the Boundaries travels on England cricket tours which is why we've got you on today, a book you released last year, but coming out in paperback imminently. But yeah, the, I remember watching you take notes in your red notebook all day long, watching every single ball, which I think is a really important part of match reporting that gets lost sometimes that, you know, you can almost uh, catch up later by reading the ball by ball summaries on Crick Info or something like that. But you 
were so disciplined to watch everything, to note take everything. And then about half past five, you would return to your laptop and, and write the whole thing down as you saw it in sort of one ideally fluent motion, file your piece and go home. I mean, you had it down to a fine art. Call me old fashioned, yeah. But um, I, when I started in 1977, uh, that Ashes series, although I'd done one test as E.W. Swanton's Amenuensis in 1973. Um, yeah, I mean, that was uh, mandatory. You, know, you, you watched every ball because, you know, there wasn't a television screen up there with, um, with replays. No, no, occasionally there was, but not, but not always. So you, you had to watch in order to keep abreast of what was going on. I like the way that you, when you watch cricket as well, look for the best angle. I have a recollection of being at a tour game at Canterbury with you and you'd found an angle behind glass on a stairwell that put you closer to behind the bowler's arm. And you didn't care that that was about 100 metres from the press box and where your desk was. It was like, no, 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 I'm going to be where I need to be to take in this game of cricket. And I think that's kind of uh, a little bit like Barat Sundarason, who's a, a occasional co-host of this show and one of our close friends on The Final Word, that I've said to him before that he reminds me of you as far as the way that he watches and note-takes all day long without actually writing anything in, until the end. But, yeah, it's not as though you became less fussy as you got older and more experienced. You you had that discipline all the way through. Oh, yeah, you'll always find me behind the arm, which is why it was so disorienting going to the Adelaide Oval the first time. Uh, it was the 78-9 tour of Australia, and uh, Sir Donald himself was uh, in the main stand, and uh, obviously square on, working out how on earth does he judge the game, but um, I think he did. As I said, the reason we've got you on today is to talk about your book, and we'll come to that in a sec. But I love the fact that even having stepped down as the correspondent at The Telegraph, which a post you held for, for a long time, and before that, The Observer and The, the uh, Independent on Sunday, and we mentioned The Almanac already, and doing this from you know, your early 20s, that you're still in your current posting as a senior cricket writer for The Telegraph, which is more a... I guess, a satellite view on the game, not necessarily writing those match reports, but being an authority on the game at large. You were very punchy on running out the non-striker and you were very punchy around the appeal process with the obstruction incident with Matt Wade at Perth Stadium. Can we talk about the Matthew Wade incident? I mean, it's in the laws of the 18th century, the laws of cricket, that the umpires shall not make a decision unless appealed to by the adversaries. Now, we've wound on from 1740 uh, by several hundred years. <laughs> Why is that still the case? Surely the umpires should be the sole judges of fair and unfair play, whatever's going on on the field, and they should be making their ruling, um, you know, whether they're appealed to or not. That's my point of view. Yeah, I read the piece and I shared the view. I mean, I hadn't thought about it until then, and I, that's what I was going to go on to say in my question is that, you still bring a fresh perspective, even though you've uh, you know been doing this for. for well, a I go back so. a long way. You I go think. back a long way, but I guess it's that that sense of history and the sense of what what's come before us that that helps you give that that perspective. Yeah. A lot of us, you know, even though we might be students of the game and I guess amateur historians to an extent. I mean, you actually are sort of uh, you are part of that because you've seen so very much of it over such a long stretch of time, which gives you the chance to write well, these kinds of books. No credit to me, it's credit to cricket. I mean, we forget that it's been going on for 300 years mm. and people have been playing it as competitively as they can and they've worked out what best practices are and the way the game should be run. And so it's it's worth seeing the context of, of, of a modern incident. 
For much of your time working as a journalist, you were a Sunday newspaper writer. Mm. Remember we had Vic Marks on the podcast a number of years ago in Perth uh, during the 2017 Ashes Test match. I listened back to it recently. We put it into our feed again. And uh, yeah, he spoke of times when he was able to spend quite a long time considering the sorts of pieces that he would write about days of cricket he missed because he didn't need to be there. I guess that would have been a similar experience for you when uh, it was all loaded up on your shoulders on the Saturday to make sure you got everything correct and I suppose you're, you're diligently writing your features and interviews uh, during the week columns and so on. But, you know, for, for much of the seven-day cycle, you're not actually committed to filing a piece. Yeah, and, and you've got to use that, particularly on tour. I mean, so my pattern would be um, if, uh, say, there was an England match going on over the weekend and then a, a break on the Monday and Tuesday before the next game started on the Thursday to get away, to get up country, to get up into the hills if it was in India or Pakistan. I mean, I just enjoy travel, but also combining business and pleasure uh, to travel somewhere away from the major city where England are playing for a cricket pretext, i.e. on expenses, <laughs> and to do a piece. So, I mean, to go to Narromine, to where Glenn McGrath grew up, uh, I mean, you can see why he was the lone wolf just by going to the, the house outside Narromine where he grew up. To see a player in his context is, is, is a great privilege and a way to understanding where that player comes from. And you only have to go there once, sort of at the start of his career, perhaps, and then you can see him in context the rest of his career. Mm, yeah, right. And, and having had the chance to do that across nine countries in addition to England, the nine countries that you've covered Test cricket in on England tours, you know, starting back in, in 1977, in a way you timed your dismount splendidly. Uh, the England tour of <laughs> South Africa in, in 2019-20, there was quite a celebration around your career on tour. I didn't know that... Colleagues. Uh, I didn't know that COVID was going to start a fortnight later after I retired from touring. But. Well, well, exactly that. I mean, in a way, it, it gave you, um, I suppose, a good opportunity to actually conceive of and, and write the book. But you know, I think even since you've come off the tour, travelling has changed. I mean, there are photographs in this book that you've released which have you on buses and planes with players kind of in their space. And we know from other journalists' accounts that that's how it used to be, right? Like you were on tour... There was the press pack, there was there were the cricketers, but you were effectively on the same tour. And and you bridged that era jump from when that was the case to now when it's far more sterilised and they're, they're, they're far more controlled, the opportunities we get to talk with players when we're away from home. And, yeah, I mean, at the end of it, I suppose, comes COVID when it had to change yet further. Yeah, I mean, I started in 1977 and uh, the England press and the England players had the same travel agent. You know, it was George Wareham travel, you went and... You know, got your plane tickets, and you know, when you arrived in Pakistan, the players were and the media invited all together to the High Commission. You know, you, uh, you shared the same transport to the airport. You know, you're in the airport, airport bus with the players. As I remember, they would go off earlier in the morning, you know, have their separate transport to the game. But, you know, it was just one party. It, was, it wasn't them and us at all. Everything um, stayed on tour at the bar. You could ask players, um, you know, what been going on in the middle. So it was far more informed than the rather sort of dry and sterilised press conference at the end of the day, where the questions are sort of limited, and the replies are even more more limited. Yeah, yeah, we were disappointed to be bowled out for 
12, but uh, we'll be working harder tomorrow, that sort of thing. I mean, I suppose they have, these press conferences have their, their place, but they're not as half as interesting as, you know, being able to talk to a player at the bar about what actually went on out, out there. Yeah, absolutely. In a way, you didn't miss an awful lot in Australia last year. I mean, we, as a press pack, didn't get anywhere near players, and that was to be expected with um, with COVID, but with our colleagues missing test matches, having picked up COVID and just how poor the series was in terms of that competitive balance. It, it wasn't an enjoyable one. So perhaps a good one for you to be at Christmas with the family. How unusual that's been for you. I mean, my, yeah. my having watched you and been on tour with you, like you're always playing tennis or playing you know, berry ball, your, your sort of version of um, four square or something Reflex like that. Ball. Reflex ball. There you go. I mean, you're, all, you're such an active uh, member of tour. And then last Christmas when you weren't there at Melbourne, I mean, even though it was a dreadful trip to be on, you, you must have... Uh, it must have felt unusual for you not being part of it for the first time in, well, in a couple of generations. I don't miss the last couple of years. I haven't missed uh, being away. I, it might be different if England were to tour, you know, Afghanistan or, or somewhere new, mm. uh, then I'd probably want to be there. But having been to these nine test-playing countries which England tour several times, yeah, I, I don't pine as soon as the television comes on and think, I only wish I was there uh, because I know what it's like to be there. Mm, mm. Your previous book in 2015, Cricket, The Game of Life, which won kind of all the awards that are there to win, it was kind of like a, a history of the game but also an ode to the game, whereas this is more, you know, you put yourself in the middle of this story as a, as a memoir. Was that a, a pretty clear decision you made to write a different kind of book this time around? Well, I wanted it to be uh, a cricket travel book, mm. if, if you see what I mean. The... Um, uh, so a chapter on each of the countries and saying what it's like to be there because I had the enormous privilege of going to these places and uh, getting up country and, you know, like say it's impossible nowadays, you go on a tour of Pakistan and you go to Karachi and Lahore and they'll go to Royal Pindi and Multan uh, mm. in December mm. for the test series. But, you know, <laughs> the overseas player, the visiting journalist is not allowed to go up into the... Uh, into the mountains, and you know, I, on my tours of Pakistan, obviously in pursuit of research for, for cricket journalism, I managed to get up to um, Gilgit and Chitral and Swat and Bunza. I mean, the most magical place. Yeah, a very different world. I mean, having been in Pakistan earlier this year, it would have been fanciful had we pitched up to have done those types of things. The the PCB would have had a conniption, not unreasonably either. I mean, it was a very important tour from a, yeah, from a safety yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it's pretty clear to me that in our friendship, when you talk about touring, that there are places that, that you hold really close. Let's use Lahore, for example. I mean, the very fact that that was your first tour in 77, you're only 23. You On that tour, you're a net bowler. You're umpiring a game at the Lahore, Jim Carter, no less, a, a magnificent ground that it is. Well, it was so much fun. Yeah, you know, I'm sure. It, it was just hedonism run wild. I mean, I, I didn't get up early that morning, so I went down to the ground at lunchtime and uh, England were playing uh, a one-day game against Lord Jim Carner. <laughs> and uh, uh, Jeffrey Boycott had made a very slow hundred and uh, not got out. So all, all the England players were fuming about not having had a bat. And I think one of the umpires just had enough and disappeared, so I was volunteered to umpire. You know, there's John Reber handing me his sweater and Phil Edmonds appealing for LBW and uh, it was just such fun, you know. Mm. The informality of it, the spontaneity, you know, whereas everything's organised now like a business trip. 
Oh, it's just so, so, so wonderful. But I guess there is a hard edge to it too in the book as well. Like, I mean, you write a lot about Bangladesh. I, I love reading you about Bangladesh because I've got an interest in it as well. But, you know, the tragedy of the former East Pakistan and how that ended and the transition period there with, uh, I, mean, I suppose, I don't know what you'd call it a revolution, but when it, when it became its own country, independence, but all that went down, uh, you write about this as well. And there's some pretty tough stories there where you've been able to talk to people close up and, and get a much better handle on on how things are compared to how we might perceive them to be hundreds of, well, thousands of kilometres away. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have tried to, to, to dig into the past of each country. I mean, my modus operandi is I check into a hotel room and there may be a television there, but, you know, I can go for a week without turning it on. Mm. Um, and I try to live in the country where we are you know, reading the newspapers and, and getting out and about rather than watching CNN or, or BBC World and hankering to be at home. I just tried, you know, you've got to compartmentalise and if you're away from your kids for a couple of months, uh, I find the best way is to uh, immerse myself in the country that, that I'm in uh, because it's just infinitely interesting. So, yeah, I mean, the chance to, to go deep in all these stories and um, see the uh, that sadder as well as the happier sides of each country. It's uh, just uh, uh, thinking that just this this winter, England are touring five countries out of the nine. I mean, how hectic is the schedule? And, you know, you're flying to New Zealand for two tests. I mean, what chances does it get out and about? And why does it have to be this way? You know, why can't instead of England playing two test series in New Zealand every five minutes, why can't they play a three or four test series every three or four years, the number of UK visitors who go out to New Zealand will be tens of thousands, you know, a trip of a lifetime, go and watch a couple of the England tests. Why just fly in for a fortnight? I just hate this evolution of the two-test series because it's just cheapening test cricket. It's saying it's only, it's only two tests, but test series doesn't, uh, test cricket doesn't matter. You know, the, the big ones do the five-test series, England, India, Australia. But everybody else, two-test series, you fly in, play a warm-up game amongst yourselves, you know, lose the first test because you're not acclimatised, and then the only issue is, is it going to be one all or, or, or two nil after the second test, and then off you go somewhere else. I really hate this decline uh, of test cricket. It's just being cheapened. It, it's, it's, you know, writing itself out of existence if you go on playing two test series like that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even call two tests a series. It's more a sort of a tryst, isn't it? It's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fling. You know, a series needs to have time to mature and, and the relationships across the, across the well, sometimes months. But you look at that, I'm sure you've studied the Future Tours program for the next five or six years, that if you're not one of the big three, you really aren't playing more than two tests in a quote-unquote yeah. series. And I agree yeah. with you that, you know, how did we reach a stage where we, we believe that test cricket can continue to enjoy its status? And we always hear from organisations, well, boards and and indeed the ICC about the primacy of test cricket, then then why give it such a limited chance to succeed Absolutely. and have these enduring storylines that you've been able to cover for so long? Think of being a young South African. You want to bowl. You want to play test cricket. You want to see Kagisa Rabadran mm. and, and Nokia and all those those quicks and whatever. You know, as good a world body attack as any in the world. What chance have you got to do that? It's uh, eight home tests in the next four home summers. We get average of two tests a year. What is going on? I mean, where are the role models? 
It, it's absolutely well. Maybe that's what the ICC want, just to, to make I, uh, Test cricket disappear and just have T um, Twenty on the calendar. Well, I, I suppose we need to remember when talking about the ICC, it's but a reflection of the members, right? And that's the problem, isn't it? That a lot of boards who mm-hmm. are represented at the ICC haven't the same interests in hosting test cricket and it does cost them a lot of money like you know one theory Ooh. i say theory one one idea we've advanced on this podcast is that you make the world test championship a minimum of three tests per series and you permit them if required to play four-day test matches not because we want four-day test cricket but you know what's the lesser of two evils three test matches played over four days or two tests played over five i'd take the former if it means we have the chance to at least have some more substance to the to the schedule. And it also doesn't require too many more days in the country. Well, yes, but also we ought to factor in what the waste, the, the failure to maximise the potential. Suppose England go to New Zealand for something more than a two-test series. Think of the tens of thousands of British people who will want to go to New Zealand to take in a couple of those test matches. Yeah. So governments should be taking a big hand in this. They should be saying, yes, we want England or India or whatever to come for more than two tests because the enormous potential for the tourist industry there. What I've always loved about being around you in press boxes, you've always got a theory. You've always been able to develop some starting point as to why something else has happened. Uh, I remember going to you and wanting to have a better understanding of Barbados as a as a country and why it produced so many test cricketers. And you, you wrote about it in your 2015 book, but you know you were the first person I, I came to to flesh out that idea. And so it goes in this book about Sri Lanka. You, you discuss Colombo, the capital, and why there's a concentration of players from the capital as opposed to other parts of that country. And, and that's a country you know as well as any, I suppose, Sri Lanka. Can you sort of elaborate on, on that a little bit, why you think that there is such a, a concentration of talent in the capital city compared to other parts of that country, given how much they love cricket? Well, we all know the strength of uh, Sri Lankan cricket are the the elite schools. Uh, and there are, far away, the majority of elite schools are in, in Colombo, but there are also a few in Kandy. So we have, you know, Kumasangakara and Murali coming from elite schools up in the hills. I think it's also pretty widely accepted that if you're going to be a test-class batsman, you've got to go to a... A uh, place where you can face bowling from the age of two or three uh, onwards. You know, the, the brain takes um, mm. that, that long to, to hardwire if you're going to be a batsman. So the, the elite schools of Sri Lanka provide that environment for the Sankaras and Jayawadanas um, to grow up there from an early age and get the formative experiences. Sri Lanka is, a, a, like most other test countries, it has been diversifying so that they have been getting their bowlers from, you know, Lassen Malinga uh, down the coast, um, you know, off the beach, um, particularly your, your fast bowlers and mystery spinners. Um, they're coming from outside the elite school areas. So I believe even the striker board has a talented person around the country trying to find the next fast bowler or, or mystery spinner uh, in a, and good for to them for that. Um, they do find a rough diamond out there. So, I mean, Sri Lanka in that way is like South Africa and Zimbabwe, and you might say England and other countries. The elite school is the nursery for the test player, where countries' boards now are trying to look outside those elite schools to find the, the, 
the bowlers um, to supplement those batsmen when we can keep it. I mentioned Barbados before, but of course the West Indies is a you know, vast range of different types of countries. And in, in the chapter on that, instead of kind of cataloguing every single West Indian nation that you've been to, you, you drill down a little bit on the rivalry between St Kitts and Nevis, which kind of gets said interchangeably, doesn't it, the way we describe those two places. But the rivalry you go into there, and and it's borne out by the fact that Nevis you know, has, had, has had six West Indies players and St Kitts, which is bigger, has had none. Did you come up with a theory on, on why that might be the case? Not well, theory. I went there and asked around. Excuse me, this is research. Yeah, the, 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 the never produced Keith Arthurton and Michael Morton, Derek Perry, Kieran Powell, Kamala Willett and Stuart Williams, a community of 12,000. But what was pointed out to me was um, there was a left-arm spinner in St. Kitts called Calvin Wilkin. He uh, got a blue hat. Um, Cambridge and dismissed uh, Jeffrey Boycott uh, twice in one match, uh, about which Boycott was very, very happy. And he told me this story. Uh, he's, he's quite big in sacred administration, but they'd asked Nevis for some of their soil because St. Kitts is pretty slow and low. Nevis, maybe because it's a far more volcanic, has, has always had decent, quick uh, cricket pitches. And uh, so when the St. Kitts sent out this request to Nevis, the person in charge of Nevis, Vance Amory, who had played for the Leewoods as a first-class cricketer before becoming the premier of Nevis, he said, no, no, you can't have some of our soil because uh, cricket is so important to Nevis because St. Kitts is about five times the population and they always win at football, but Nevis wants to keep its primacy in cricket and therefore it keeps its own soil. I love it. I love it. When I say theory, I, I, I didn't mean to say that you hadn't developed your theories on, on the basis of fact, more just the fact that you are, uh, you know, you, you think widely about these things. You don't just sort of take the information and, and leave it there. You, you, you add it to a... a what what a else should a Sunday journalist do? But absorb you yourself go. in it, in the place and then come <laughs> up with it. And, and, and if I could just say the one guiding principle, he was adept at generalisation, an essential aspect of the travelling art. That was Jan, formerly James Morris, who I say called the finest of travel writers, writing about Ibn Battuta, uh, the Moroccan of the 13th century, who travelled around the world far more than Marco Polo ever did. And I would call him the finest of travellers. So, yeah, to be adept at generalisation without ever stereotyping, uh, I should add. The last tour you went on, I uh, mentioned earlier, was South Africa. It was also uh, a landmark tour that you attended when England returned there, you know, a number of times through the 90s. But a lot of social history was playing out then as well. And um, you reflect on the unresolved racial tension, which is palpably the case now in, in terms of the reports we get out of South Africa. But you've been a witness to this and, you know, you express that frustration in the book more generally as well, that, that the game in parts of the world that should do better when it comes to its diversity, including England, don't do so. And, and that's been a bugbear of yours, uh, well, all the way back to when you were editing the Almanac, and I'm, and I'm sure earlier than that as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and what a, how good in parts the South African story is. I mean, I was reading Mike Holding's book the other day and uh, uh, how he recalls how Mackay Antini wouldn't, would run to the ground because he didn't want to go in the South African team bus because of the... The racial discrimination. You know, my canteen, this is only sort of 10, 20 years ago. And then when I uh, I observed that number 11 
black, fast bowler in the South African team will be sitting at the back of the team bus. I suppose that's a stage of evolution further. But now I think it's wonderful what they've achieved in the last year or two, having had their sort of cricket equivalent of truth and reconciliation committees. I do, I do think they are colourblind. I mean, the successes you know, to win in New Zealand, uh, one of those matches, um, to, to win that victory at Lords or whatever. This is a team pulling together and more than some of their parts because they are just cricketers together. Mm, mm. And, and in that same part of the world, you, you don't go quite so deep on Zimbabwe, but instead you use it as an opportunity to write a portrait of the career of Graham Hick, you know, of course, having grown up in Zimbabwe before, I was going to say being poached by England. It's not quite as straightforward as that, but moving to England and becoming a professional and ultimately playing international cricket for England instead of his homeland of Zimbabwe. But I mean, there, there are these these fascinating cricketers that you've covered who've had origins elsewhere and have decided to make England their own country. And then you've been on the beat covering them and, and Hick's a good example of that. Yeah, just see their contacts. I mean, uh, yeah, I went to his um, house and you know, saw the nets in the, in the garden, and yeah, I mean, the, the preposition is crucial. I think he grew up having bowlers, you know, the the the, the African farming lads bowling for him in the nets or to him in the nets, and then the preposition changed. Not so much when he went to Worcester, but as he went to Queensland, and he found the Queensland bowlers running in flat out, trying to hit him, and they were bowling at him, and that was a shock. And I, he took a long time. It was, it was probably in his mid-20s by the time he went to Queensland and had that first taste of what Test cricket is like and what the West Indies would be like in 1991 in his first series. So, yeah, I mean, just that a picture of the understanding of where he came from and what hurdle he had to overcome in terms of his batting, how he liked the quiet backwater of New Road, Worcester, Northern Districts, New Zealand, before mid-20s, Queensland and Test cricket. And maybe those hurdles, he would have benefited from climbing them earlier. Yeah, using Queensland as, as the example there. I, I'm mindful we're bouncing around a bit, but we're, we are limited for time, so I, I'm trying to cram a fair bit in here. But you, you talk of Queensland, a ride of Queensland being a place that takes a week to adjust to, and if you don't arrive in Brisbane and in Queensland and play preparatory games, you're going to get rinsed in the test match. And so it was for England last year. I mean, you couldn't have known that when you wrote the book that they would go to um, Brisbane and have not one but two games rained out ahead of the first test. They tried to do the right thing, albeit games that you know weren't first class status or, or anything quite like that but but still your theory holds that unless you play serious cricket in Queensland before the first test you kind of no chance uh, try and approach Brisbane from the north not from the south <laughs> if you play from the north you know played in Townsville or whatever then you're acclimatized but I, I, I still you know it's, it's still the same principle why on earth didn't England try and play Australia A before that uh, first test it might have been rained off but why didn't they try and play Australia A first as well as their own inter-squad game? It was just, you know, naive. It, for all the circumstances of COVID, you know, just to turn up in the morning of the Gabba and <laughs> hope things would come right. There's a there's a theme we've returned to a little bit on this show in the past when interviewing people who don't play professionally. It's that I think there's an importance about still trying to play the game. Uh, even we had Mark Steele on, on last week and this was a point that, that he... Um, uh, he, he went into a little bit that, that still playing I think is is important and trying to keep playing I mean you've done that now deep into your 60s I think you 
Are you the leading wicket taker at your club? Despite being so busy during the summer covering every test match England's played since the 70s or something like that, that, that you've still been able to find a way to play loads of cricket and you know, media games around the world as well. I've said before that you've always got a cricket ball in your hand. You're always mucking around in the press box and doing something or another. Like Actually, being a leg spinner is a big part of your identity as well. Well, I do it because I, 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 I love doing it, not because... But I, I do think my product is that it's good to have some small inkling, even at a bog standard level, what it's like to be out there. You know, you, 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 you're, you're the spinner, you've got the ball, and the whole team is... Are you going to let your teammates down on the, uh, and try to bowl these, uh, this opposition out? You know, that, that pressure of you know, dropping a catch, you know, the simplest things of what it's like being out there. You know, the worst feeling in the world is, is you know, dropping a catch and letting a teammate down, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it's just good to have that reminder that, you know, when, when you know, somebody drops a catch for England, as simple as that, the, the, the stresses of, of a big game when nobody's watching, um, you know, and then you multiply it by a billion times for when you're playing for your country. But it's, yeah, it's just a good reminder to keep feet on ground, I suppose. I think you're up to something like, and you'll tell me the exact number, I'm sure, but 500 plus tests that you've covered that England have, have played in. I, we were trying to work this out recently about where Richie Benno finished up, having you know played 61 and then covered about, about yeah, 500. He's Sorry? He's the winner. So he's the world winner, all-time winner. But but not outside of your reach, I don't think, in kind of closing. I mean, yeah, if, ben, yeah. if Benno's up in the 560-odds, maybe a wee bit more, I mean, you're above 500. You're going to haul him down, aren't you? No, no. Uh, he should be the all-time winner. We'll stop. <laughs> well, I guess the point I'm trying to make, though, is, Shield, is that you're not going to stop attending Test Cricket and writing about it, are you? You're not going to tour anymore, and this, this book is a nice... Full stop on that. But as far as you being a presence, writing about the game, attending the game in England, I mean, I don't know how many days of county cricket I ran into you at this year. I mean, you're you're still um, you're still fascinated by it, ensconced in it. Yeah, I mean, I'm just asking myself the question: uh, Are cricket journalists like uh, cricketers? Do they wake up one, one morning and, and feel right? I've had enough. Uh, but I'm not sure it is because obviously playing cricket is a far more physical process. And uh, maybe it's not analogous, but uh, yeah, I just feel the, um, the same urge. I mean, it's a sunny day. Uh, I, I mean, today, well, can we play a 30 over game? At, you know, starting at 12 o'clock, yeah, 30 over the side. I mean, why not? The sky's cloudless and uh, let's get out there. Kind of comes back to that old Richie Benno theory that October is still a great month to play cricket in England, yet we don't play cricket in this month, I, I know, suppose. because of the groundsmen want to get the seed in and growing. I mean, you understand that, but please, you know, let's get a few games in. Always a reason, always a theory. Uh, Beyond the Boundaries travels on England cricket tours. Shilberry, you're one of the finest people anyone could come across, and the fact that you've uh, committed your uh, your, commi- your professional life to cricket uh, means the game is, is much better for it. I'm glad you're going to keep doing this. In your new role as the senior writer uh, for The Telegraph, I hope you've enjoyed your first experience of being on a podcast as well, and uh, thanks for coming on The Final Word for it. Thank you, Adam. It's been most enjoyable. This is the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thanks to Shield Berry for joining the show. Having never listened to a podcast, he's now been on a podcast. That's one more podcast <laughs> than he has ever heard. Yeah, I, I, I love Shield. Uh, I, I love sitting next to him when, I, when, when the chance um, comes up at work and have done so quite a bit. 
uh, in the time that I've been covering cricket in England. And yeah, the fact that he's now like well into the 500s. Yeah, I, I think I said in the interview that Richie Benno did 500 plus, played 61, uh, and is you know the clubhouse leader. Shield might get there. Shield's a decent chance of getting there. It does make me think, how many Test matches are we going to end up watching? By the mm. time we're finished doing these jobs, I know I'm in the 140s, and I had about 50 odd before I started working in cricket. So I've nearly done about 100 at work. I wouldn't have a clue. You're the kind of person who knows these sorts of things. I've, well, I've you're never the one counted with the spreadsheets. Although I do have a spreadsheet yeah. about this. Sure. <laughs> I know. That I have a spreadsheet for things that other people have done, yeah, not yeah. for things that I've. Well, done. I just thought I needed to catalogue it. Uh, we, we worked out um, that Bredig saw his 100th Test match at Gaul. Okay. Whenever we were there in sure. July, June, July this year, but. Yeah, I'm not saying for a moment that I'll that I'll take Shield down one day, but if I stay in cricket, I'll give it a probably give it a shake. Mm. But I don't expect I'll be doing well, cricket forever either. So yeah, you know. and they probably won't be playing Test matches forever. At the well, rate that's that we're that, going. Well, that, well, that's it. That's probably There'll the be three teams playing Test. Yeah, well, the fact that South Africa are playing whatever it is eight home Tests in the next four years, mm. that might be the way that a number of Test nations go. But yes, it, it's um, yeah, it was it was lovely to talk through his book. I read his book. It, you, probably sensing the questions I was a bit vague in different sec- I read it over a year ago so I don't remember it as much as I would have back then but yes he was a, a lovely guest and he's a great man well that brings us to the end of another show edited as always by Dave Collins thanks so much to him keep an ear on the feed because there will be daily shows if you want to keep up with the World Cup without having to watch two games a day which is what we will be doing for the next few weeks we will tell you what happened in those games and it will save you the time it's a much more efficient way to enjoy sport and potentially funnier than watching them live there will also be story times on the it'll weekend. also be us going around regional Victoria at least for yeah. the next few days if you we if shot in lawn last night we're going well by the time this is out you'll know this but um, we'll be out in Birigara and Colac tomorrow and more later in the week, you'll be mm-hmm. off to talk. We're doing stuff. We're, we're, doing we're stuff. on the road. We're having fun. We're on the road again. Oh, Lord, we're on the road again. All right, this has been the Final Word Cricket Podcast. Thanks for listening. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. See you next time. I had to go about it.